Welcome one and all to RFK All The Way, your podcast for commentary on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign. This is Matthew Tower, your host, and I'm joined today by David Talbot, the New York Times bestselling historian and author of The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA and the Rise of America's Secret Government, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, by the light of burning dreams, the triumphs and tragedies of the second American revolution, Devil Dog, the amazing true story of the man who saved America, season of the witch, and between heaven and hell. Previously, David co-founded Salon.com, and his extensive career in journalism has included prominent editorial staff roles, columns, and contributions to Mother Jones, the San Francisco Examiner, back in the Hearst days, the New Yorker, Time, Rolling Stone, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, and The San Francisco Chronicle. So what an honor and privilege to chat with you today, David. Welcome. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for delineating all my books. That's very kind of you. Well, thank you very much. And, and I have to say, I've only read Chessboard thus far, and I'm looking forward to getting through the rest of the Talbot Library. So, <laughs> so we're going to discuss three primary topics today. Robert Kennedy Jr., National Truth and Reconciliation, and a deep dive into the fires of hell, aka a discussion of the Devil's Chessboard, which I just finished. So let's start with your support for Bobby Kennedy Jr. You wrote two great pieces about his presidential run recently on your blog at thedavidtalbotshow.com, which I encourage everyone to check out. And you mentioned that you encouraged him to run for president in the early 2000s, back during the darkest days of the Bush administration. So let's start with a simple question. Why are you endorsing Bobby Kennedy Jr. for president? Well, a good question, Matthew. Thank you. I'm very enthusiastic about the Bobby Kennedy Jr. campaign. And I, as you say, I have officially endorsed him. I knew it would be a controversial decision, even within my family of liberals, of Democrats, of journalists. It was a very controversial decision because Bobby Kennedy has been smeared over the last few years, of course, as a crazy conspiracy freak, anti-vaccine kind of activist and so forth. That's not the Bobby Kennedy I know. And I've done for some 20 years. You're right. I first asked him when I was editing a salon back in, I think, 2002 or three to run, to run for an office. He was an environmental lawyer at the time. He was fairly young still, and he was raising his kids. He told me he wouldn't do it because he was raising children still. He was 14 when his own father was tragically assassinated in Los Angeles in 1968. So he has very vivid memory scars, really, from that terrible time. So Bobby told me in 2003, I think it was, that he wouldn't run. I then saw him again about a year or so later at the convention in Boston, the Democratic convention, when John Kerry was nominated for the president. And I met with Bobby for breakfast over at the Parker House Hotel, which is a famous hotel in Kennedy lore and has served as a locus for many occasions over the years. I told Bobby then I was investigating what his father suspected about the JFK assassination in Dallas. And I was planning to write a book called Brothers, which I did. 
about Bobby Kennedy's, his father's, suspicions about that assassination and how he didn't accept the Warren report. The whole time I was talking, Bobby Jr. looked down his plate like I was telling him for the first time his father had been killed. He had a stricken look on his face. He couldn't look me in the eye. He said we were always taught as children following the assassinations of his uncle and father to look forward and not back. He said my father never would have reopened the case. I said, Bobby, with all due respect, that's not true. Your father was working quietly, secretly with some top investigators of his, like Walter Sheridan, who I interviewed, Nancy Sheridan, Walter's widow. I knew that RFK Sr. and Walter Sheridan were looking in to the assassination, investigating it. And he planned, Bobby Kennedy's father, Jr.'s father, planned to reopen the case into the JFK assassination if he'd made it back to the White House in 1968. But he himself was killed, of course, in Los Angeles. So, you know, that's some of the background. I had great respect for Bobby Kennedy Jr. as an environmental lawyer. That's why I urged him to run for office. It took him a long time to confront the truth about the death of his father, the violent death of his father and his uncle. But I give him great praise and respect for finally addressing those very painful subjects that his own family has been averse to for many, many years. He's the only one that I know who was as outspoken as he is. He read my books. He read Jim Douglas's book about the Kennedys, the presidency. He changed his mind. He met with Sirhan Sirhan, the convicted assassin of his father, in jail. He said he knew he didn't fire the fatal shot that killed his father, which is true. Thomas Deguchi, the coroner of Los Angeles, who performed the autopsy on RFK, wrote the same thing, that Sirhan could not have fired the fatal shot that evening in Los Angeles. So Bobby Kennedy has had the courage of his convictions. He's evolved politically not only on the assassinations in the chemical industry, which he's tilted against for many years as an environmental lawyer, but now against big pharma, which, as you know, is very, very powerful in this country. It controls through advertising dollars, much of the media, the, the corporate media, as Bobby has pointed out. And, you know, big industry in general has captured the regulatory agencies that are meant to protect us not only the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers, but the war and, and weapons manufacturers. We've been permanently at war. And by the way, we're coming up to the 60th anniversary of JFK's amazing peace speech in June 1963 at American University, where he urged the American people to have sympathy for our enemies. We all breathe the same air. We all are mortal. We all cherish our children's future. He was speaking the Russians at the time. The Russians have been demonized again, of course, because of Ukraine. And so I think what Bobby Kennedy is doing with this presidential campaign is continuing the legacy of his uncle and his father. He's very brave to wade into these political waters. He knows how much controversy, how much hatred he's stirring up. But he alone, I think, of all the presidential candidates who've announced so far, can bring the country together. And he already is, both the, the left and the right. He has very strong critics in the corporate media, of course, Politico, New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek, have all my former publications, Salon. 
I don't even know who owns Salon at this point. It's a public meeting. I started back in 1995. I've taken shots, strong shots at Bobby Kennedy for his presidential bid. So all respect to him for daring to do this. He didn't need to do it as he approaches 70. He's almost as old as I am. He didn't need to wade into these waters, but he's brave enough, like his father, like his uncle, to do this. What's right for the country. He knows it's, he's raising the issues about war and peace, about the control of corporate power in this country, about the border not being, you know, being sort of overrun and not being fortified enough that should be Democratic Party issues. Also censorship, free speech. These are questions that once were at the forefront of the Democratic Party. We believed in free speech. Now we cancel each other when we say something too controversial. Bobby Kennedy has spoken out against that. So yes, conservatives have embraced them, but so people like me on the left and I've been on the left wing of the Democratic Party my whole life. So I have endorsed him, and I do so for those reasons. Beautifully said, David. And one framing I've been bringing to the question of Bobby Kennedy is it's not a matter of left and right. It's a matter of being Americans, coming together and uniting around a vision of America that is based in common sense, doing the right thing, telling the truth, and healing this country. And I think so much of the division in this country is totally manufactured by the deep powers that we're going to get into, which you've exposed in the devil's chessboard. In terms of your conversation with Bobby initially, when you first wanted him to run for president, and he said, you know, my family says we don't look back, we just look forward. I think we as a country have to look back in order to look forward. I think if we don't reclaim our history and start telling the truth about it, we're totally lost. So with that, maybe we could start talking about the National Truth and Reconciliation Committee that you founded, which when I discovered that hiding out in a dark corner of the web, it's americantruthnow.org. I just like, my mind was like, yes, this is great. This is exactly what we need because at UC Berkeley, I did a peace and conflict studies degree focusing mm -hmm. on nonviolent social movements as well as conflict transformation. So I took a close look at what happened in South Africa with the truth and reconciliation process there. There's a fantastic book about that called Watching the Wind by Susan Colin Marks and a film called Long Night's Journey into Day. Mm. And that process of creating a space where people who have committed political crimes can tell the truth. And the deal, as I understood it, was that they tell the truth, they're not going to get prosecuted for the crime they committed, but the process of telling the truth to the nation and to the families of the victims creates a kind of restorative justice and a healing. So I'd love to hear more about what inspired you with the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission and what your vision for it might be and how that also might connect to Bobby's run. Well, Matthew, thank you so much again for bringing that up. You're right. That process, that, that letter, that public letter that initiated the truth and reconciliation effort campaign has been largely, you know, hidden and is in a dark place of the web. You're right. You stumbled on it. Thank you for doing that. But I got about five years ago, I had had a stroke. I came out of that. I was at home. It was before the pandemic. And I thought, you know, before I <laughs> move on, I want to get all the people who I think have some stake in the assassinations that happened in the 60s, 
not only of the Kennedy brothers, but Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Those four really changed the direction of this country in a tragic way, the violent death of those four people. They were great leaders, and they would have taken the country in a very different direction. So it was important to me that all the people who I thought had studied the cases or had some stake in them signed a public letter demanding a reopening of the investigation into these murders, and also that we do so, as you say, in the spirit of South Africa and the truth and reconciliation process there, that anyone who had any information about these assassinations should come forward without fear of being prosecuted, without fear of being jailed. And so I was able, fortunately, to get a vast array of people to sign this letter saying that all four of these public figures, the Kennedy brothers, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, were the victims of the national security state. That was quite a thing to say at that point publicly. And I got doctors who worked on the mortally wounded President Kennedy at Parkland Hospital to sign that statement. I got members of the Kennedy family, including Bobby Jr. and his sister, Kathleen Townsend Kennedy, to sign that statement. I got members of the King family and Malcolm X's family and a number of people. Daniel Ellsberg, also G. Robert Blakey, who was the chief counsel of the House Assassinations Committee that investigated these assassinations in the 1970s. And let's not forget the final official statement on the assassination of President Kennedy was not the Warren Report, which has been largely discredited now. It's a, really a cover-up, but was the report released by the House Assassinations Committee in the late 1970s. And that found there was indeed a conspiracy to kill the president. So when I got G. Robert Blakey to sign that statement, that was a big achievement because he had resisted really sticking his neck out for many years. Many other people, and Daniel Ellsberg was you know, reluctant for many years to sign such a statement as well. But they came to the conclusion that, yes, these four significant public figures were all the victims of the national security state. They were challenging, of course, the Cold War orthodoxy at the time in their different ways. You know, what Martin Luther King was doing was quite radical at the end of his life. He intended to occupy Washington with a poor people's encampment, not just a march, an encampment. He was going to stay there until Congress diverted funding from the Vietnam War to social you know, issues here at home. That's a radical thing to do. And of course, they wouldn't let him do that. He was assassinated before he could complete his plans to lead a poor people's march on Washington and wasn't as effective without him. You know, Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, someone who is regarded as much more left-wing and militant than Martin Luther King, said that Martin called him personally and asked the Black Panthers to participate in the Poor People's March in Washington in 1968. And Bobby told me that he and the Panthers would have been proud to participate. So he was putting together, Martin Luther King, an amazing coalition, both groups that were militant and radical, as well as more mainstream and liberal groups, to occupy Washington at the time. And that's why I believe he was killed. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And this ties into something I've noticed about Dr. King and his legacy, which is, I would say, the mostly the erasure of the sharpest critiques he had of the military-industrial complex. You and I remember the statement 
from Dr. King, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government. But all we hear from the U.S. officially about the story of Dr. King's life was it all, was all about racial harmony. It was all about I have a dream because that's the part of what Dr. King represented that the national security state at this point is okay with. They're okay with the idea that he was marching on behalf of poor people, but they're not okay with the idea that he was trying to get money redirected out of the war machine in Vietnam exactly. for, for domestic programs, right? I think King was much more of a truth teller when it was very uncomfortable. After his speech against the war, a year before he was killed at Riverside Church in New York, the New York Times, among others, dozens of newspapers came out editorially against King. He was vilified by the press in this country, as Bobby Kennedy is today. And Bobby Kennedy's father, when he announced her president early in 1968, he was vilified by the New York Times and the Washington Post for being anti-war, for being against the Johnson administration, and so on. He was seen as a, as a disruptor of the Democratic Party, as Bobby Jr. is today. So I don't believe the media gatekeepers. They play a very backward reactionary role in this country. As I see that as a journalist who's worked for many of these places before, and they published my work at times, but I find them wholly as a whole to be a very reactionary force in this country. Well, speaking of which, and this may be jumping a little bit ahead to some of the material you cover in Devil's Chessboard related to the CIA, but what I wonder, David, is what percentage of those media gatekeepers are literally paid by the CIA, either directly or indirectly through its Operation Mockingbird program, and or what percentage of them are just fellow travelers who are ideologically aligned? It just seems like 95 plus percent, maybe even more of the mainstream media fall into one of those two categories. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that's the million dollar, billion dollar question. To what extent does the CIA, does the national security apparatus in general, wield influence in Hollywood and throughout the mass media world in the newsrooms? Carl Bernstein of Woodward and Bernstein fame wrote a very famous article at the time in Rolling Stone after he left Washington Post. And it was outing by name people who had, were assets of the CIA, people, media people, news people his colleagues. He famously did not include the Washington Post, his alma mater, in this you know expose of the media, but he did expose a lot of people. This was back in the 1970s, of course. There's been nothing like it since then, but I think it's overdue that we have an expose about the media and how they serve too often, the Pentagon, the CIA, the national security apparatus. I mean, look at MSNBC and CNN and these so-called liberal or center-of-the-road news operations. Every day, they have a parade of national security officials, talking heads on air. They never ask people like me or Noam Chomsky or Chris Hedges or you to go on air to comment on Ukraine, on Russia, on what's happening in Washington. They have national security people. I mean, this is propaganda. It's like the old Soviet Union. That's the only view that we get again and again. I'm reading Norman Solomon's excellent book, which comes out next week, War Made Invisible. And he thinks that we kill people every day. He knows that we kill people every day. The U.S. government is, like King said, the most violent force in the world today. Through drone attacks, assassinations, we blow up wedding parties by mistake. Oops, we're sorry. Sorry, we kill some innocent people. There used to be fewer 
around this. When the CIA assassinated or tried to assassinate foreign leaders, the church committee in the 1970s exposed this. No one even says peep about it today. There's no dialogue about it. There's no discussion about the obscene amounts we spend on weapons and war. It's crushing the middle class in this country, the Pentagon's budget. The recent debt ceiling agreement only gave the Pentagon more money. Everything else would cut. It's ridiculous. This is a war state. And we haven't had this national debate about war spending since the Vietnam era, except Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy is the only presidential candidate who's raised the question, are we too militaristic a country? And yes, we are. Yeah, absolutely. And he's telling the truth. You probably saw he put on his campaign website a little video where he said, this is an experiment in truth, this campaign. And that brings to mind Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography was called Experiments in Truth. And Satyagraha, you know, is holding fast to truth. So I think that tradition of holding fast to truth from Gandhi carried down through Dr. King, and now here we have it with Bobby Jr., you know, telling the truth about, for example, what's going on with the Ukraine war and the fact that it was provoked, which the media doesn't want to talk about. They want to say that Russia's invasion was unprovoked because then they get to demonize Russia and justify everything they're doing. Everyone read the cover uh, story in Harper's Magazine, Why Are We in Ukraine? These are not crazy left-wing, you know, pro-Putin people. These are serious middle-of-the-road national security experts who've written this piece. It's a history of why Putin and Russia feel so aggrieved against the West and feel so fearful of the, the creeping efforts made by NATO and the U.S. on Russian sovereignty. So yes, there is, there's reasons, there's lots of context for this war. It's a great tragedy. It's a war crime that he invaded the nation of Ukraine. But now, because it's become a proxy war between the West and Russia, we're willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. I have friends who are Ukrainian. I have a former girlfriend who's a Ukrainian journalist. It's disgusting to me, the rhetoric I see, the pro-war rhetoric from these armchair generals in this country. They're willing not to have their own hides put at risk or their sons and daughters, but they're willing to kill the last Ukrainian, you know, in order to defend some ideal, in order to humiliate Putin. Guess what? The Russians will not be humiliated. Were they in World War II when they helped defeat our Nazi enemy? No. They're tough people. They will fight and fight and fight. And so will the Ukrainians. So someone with a level head, whether it's the Chinese leaders or Brazilian or India has to come in and say, enough, we're not going to actually, you know, keep this war going. We're going to end it. Absolutely. And just to throw out an even, I think, even more hot button provocative aspect of all of this, you know, it's recently been revealed that the United States is knowingly and illegally violating its own laws, arming the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other Ukrainian neo-Nazi battalions. So this is such a 1984 Orwell moment where suddenly the neo-Nazis are on the side of the U.S. military industrial complex just because they can be used as pawns against Russia, which of course ties into some of the deep history of Dulles. But before we go to Devil's Chessboard, I do want to come back to the, the truth and reconciliation. What are your thoughts about that as a healing process potentially after Bobby comes into office that we could actually have finally a national healing and a catharsis 
around those four key political assassinations and all of this sort of related history. I kind of view America as a bit of a social insane asylum, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Bobby said something the other day about how in a family, if the parents are lying to the kids, the kids are going to be at each other's throats. Metaphorically, I think there's that has been going on for the last 60 years because people just, we don't have shared reality. We don't have shared truth because we've been lied to so much. So if we can actually have that truth and that reconciliation and get to kind of a collective sanity, it could be just work wonders on a social healing level. So that's my idea for your Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What are your thoughts, David? I agree with you. I think the spirit of reconciliation is paramount. And it's the only thing that will bring this very polarized country together. I think we all, you know, the left and right, Democrats versus said Republicans, blue versus red, we're all at each other's throats. And who's that serve? Only the people at the top. Only the people who are benefiting from this kind of acrimony. So I think that's what the whole spirit of Bobby Kennedy's campaign is this year. It's bringing together this very fractional, factionalized country. I had lunch with him recently, about two weeks ago. He's Catholic. He's very religious. He's very spiritual. That's the mood that he's in. It's not fighting. It's not that he's fighting to win. He wants to speak the truth to the American people. And they haven't heard that truth in a long, long time. And dark truths have been covered up. As you say, we can't go forward until we look with a clear eye at our history as a country. And of course, all these efforts to censor history are just digging a deeper grave for this country. We need to understand our history to go forward. Bobby Kennedy is one of the few craziest people who's done that. He's looked at what happened to his own family, how it was torn apart by the deaths of those two men, his uncle and his father. I know from my own work and my own, you know, talking to the members of the family, what that did to them. It really it was very destructive. And so for Bobby Kennedy now, nearing 70, to run for office and try and heal the country, to me, is almost martyr-like. It's almost religious, a journey that he's on. So that's the spirit I think that we have to have at this point. We have to put aside the divisions that have torn us apart and that are really making things worse. Look at, look at the environment now on the East Coast because of the wildfires in Canada. We should all be pulling together to make the world more inhabitable for our children, our grandchildren. I have kids. I have nieces and nephews. My brother's grandchildren. I don't yet, but I will. What kind of world are they going to inherit? Do we want them to inherit this world that's polluted and constantly war and feuding with each other? No. We want, I think, a vision that President Kennedy laid out instead in his peace speech some 60 years ago. A genuine peace that emphasized diplomacy over weapons of war. We haven't had that in a long, long, long time. And I think the American people are hungry for that. And that's the vision that Bobby is offering them now. Absolutely, David. And for me, the June 10th, 1963 JFK speech was absolutely the greatest presidential speech of all time. And I say that partially because I'm a peace and conflict studies major. That's my background from college. But ever since I was a kid, I always had this vision like we need to have a world where we are living cooperatively and harmoniously. It's possible. We don't have to live in a world where the sword of Damocles is hanging over our heads. Nuclear incineration is constantly a threat. This doesn't need to be the world that we're in. And we don't need to be in all these crazy conflicts. 
And true. you can see that. By the way, they can see that speech on YouTube. Everyone who's tuning in right now can see the amazing speech, the visionary speech that President Kennedy delivered at the height of the Cold War at American University on June 10th, 1963. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. Absolutely. And I, you know, you see the photo behind me. I was there, right, in Boston, and it was an extraordinary event. And Bobby has talked about the idea of American resurrection, which ties into what you said about the almost religious aspect to this, that we can actually bring democracy and a society back from the dead, a society that was killed on November 22nd, 1963, in many ways. And we can, if we devote our resources to each other in development and positive economic cooperation and competition instead of the feeding the war machine, then we can have the right kind of future for this world. So I believe that's possible. My basic idea is that what happened on November 22nd, 1963 was the big event, right? And then the Warren Report, which should have been called the Dulles Report, was the big lie. And that what's contained in your book, as well as James Douglas's book, is the big truth. And the truth will set us free. And we need the truth about all four of them, but that was that was the real turning point in our history. That was the first one that set us down this dark path. And we were talking about how much we've been lied to. And I just want to name one example of some of these lies that are just so crazy making to me. I went and found a video of Dan Rather on CBS. He had seen the Zapruder film in private. Of course, he didn't show it in public. You know, no one got to see the Zapruder film at the time right after the assassination. But he described what he saw in the Zapruder film. And he had the gall to say that Jack Kennedy's head came violently forward. <laughs> the films we saw were taken by an amateur photographer who had a particularly good vantage point just past the building from which the fatal shot was fired. The films show President Kennedy's open black limousine making a left turn off Houston Street onto Elm Street on the fringe of downtown Dallas, a left turn made just below the window in which the assassin was waiting. About 35 yards past the very base of the building, just below the window, President Kennedy could be seen to, to put his right hand up to the side of his head to either brush back his hair or perhaps rub his eyebrow. President Kennedy was sitting on the same side of the car as the building from which the shot came, Mrs. Kennedy, the spy's side, in the jump seat in front of them, Mrs. Connolly and Governor Connolly. Governor Connolly on the same side of the car as the president, and in the front seat, two Secret Service men. Just as the president put that right hand up to the side of his head, he, you could see him lurch forward. The first shot had hit him. Mrs. Kennedy was looking in another direction and apparently didn't see or sense that first shot or didn't hear it. But Governor Connolly in the seat in front appeared to have heard it or at least sensed that something was wrong. The governor's coat was open. He, he reached back in this fashion, exposing his white shirt front, 
at the assassin's window. He reached back as if to, to offer aid or ask the president something. At that moment, a shot clearly hit the governor in the front, and he fell back in the seat. Mrs. Connolly immediately threw herself over him in a protective position. In the next instant, with this time Mrs. Kennedy apparently looking on, a second shot, the third total shot, hit the president's head. He, his head could be seen to move violently forward. And so, and I wanted to mention that in the context of all the, the media lying that we were referring to earlier, and the CIA, it's not legal for them to propagandize the American public. They shouldn't be propagandizing anybody, but they've been propagandizing us for years. I'm not entirely sure that's protected free speech. And I don't know if I've ever heard anyone raise that topic, but I just wanted to throw that idea out with you before we jump into the devil's chessboard. Is CIA it's, propaganda free speech? <laughs> you're right. That blew people's minds when they, for themselves, finally saw the Zapruder film. The people that killed the president that day didn't reckon on a obscure dress manufacturer taking home movies of the motorcade. And that's what Abraham Zapruder did. He took home movies that showed the president was the victim of sharpshooters from the rear and the front, the grassy knoll, the famous grassy knoll area. His head is rocked backwards. His the top of his skull is blown off. His head goes backwards as it, you know, he sustains that shot. The doctors who worked on the mortally wounded president at Parkland Hospital, as I said earlier, signed my letter saying he was the victim of the national security state. He was the victim of a conspiracy that day. He was shot from the rear and the front. So they saw medical evidence of this working on him up close that day. So it's absurd that the media has towed the line of these people. Yes, we've been propagandized for years by the CIA and the national security state in general. We're led to believe that we're hunting terrorists when we blow up people around the world. We don't even know who these people are at this point. The kill list is decided by people above our pay grade. We don't even have any access to this information. They throw people in jail who are dissidents like Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning, others who dare to show the results of this, what we do overseas to people, how we blow them, kill them. So, you know, to me, this country has gone down a very dark and dangerous path. And, you know, the Kennedys were trying to lead us forward. And they became victims because they were trying to imagine a different future for all of us. So I think, yes, we accept the tenets, the media does, the mass media, the corporate media, national security, sort of principles are again and again being fed to us every night by the newscasts, by the newspapers. But thank God, and Bobby Kennedy Jr. told me this two weeks ago when I had lunch with him. He's doing a workaround around the corporate media. And that's what you are doing, Matthew, with your podcast. We don't all agree politically, but we agree that there's a way to go around the corporate media now through podcasts, through alternative media, through social media. And there's dozens and dozens of sites and podcasts and programs like yours now. And people, the American people on the left and the right are hungry. They're, they're hungry for the truth. And so I think when we can give it to them, they've been lied to for so long by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. Watch the movie Kill the Messenger. That's an amazing film about how Gary Webb 
was pilloried by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the LA Times for having the temerity, the courage to tell the truth about how the Contra war was blowing back in this country and the effect of the war on the Contras on this country. So on the drugs and so forth that were flooding our cities during those years. Gary Webb was driven out of the press because he had the courage at the San Jose Mercury to tell a story, and he later killed himself. So it's a tragic story. No one saw that movie. It was a great movie, dramatic film. It came out about a dozen years ago, 10 years ago. I urge all your viewers to watch that film. But this shows how dissidents within the media are dealt with. They're scapegoated, they're driven out, they're said to be smeared, they're called conspiracy freaks at worst. And this is what happens if you have the courage to tell the truth in this country. Beautifully said. And, you know, our future President Kennedy, as I like to refer to him, has talked about a bunch of plans to tackle the corrupt merger of state and corporate power and hit the reset button on a lot of government agencies. My question for you as a professional journalist, David, is what needs to be done about these corporate propaganda machines like the New York Times and CNN and all of them. Because even if we go back to when we had a fairness doctrine in this country, which we don't anymore, and Bobby has talked about, we need that back. I don't think a fairness doctrine means on one hand, you get someone telling the truth. And on the other hand, you have someone giving you state-sponsored lies. Do these media companies need to lose their license? What needs to happen so that we have honest media in this country instead of state-sponsored propaganda? Well, unfortunately, I think we're always going to have, you know, false media operations. And Trump, in his anger and at last, called fake news. It is, in a way. That's what we get mostly from the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the CNN, the MSNBC. Every night, we get a certain view, a slanted view of the truth. We get lied to, deceived. So I believe in alternative media. That's why I started Salon back in 1995. It was supposed to be an independent, it was an independent news outlet. We covered the Clinton impeachment. We covered the war in Iraq in a very different way. We had voices like Glenn Greenwald and others who had great courage to tell the truth. We had a reporter who was not embedded with U.S. military, covered the war in Iraq. He was a brave person, Felt Robertson. He rode himself across the Tigris River, and he covered the war as an independent journalist. That's a great bravery for him to do that. So I'm very proud of what we accomplished at Salon during my 10 years there. I'm not proud of it at all right now. I don't know, as I said, who the hell owns it, who staffs it, what it is today. But that's not the Salon I founded. I founded a very independent and courageous organization, and we got holy hell for that. The Washington Press Corps booed when President Clinton said, where's the table for Salon at the White House press dinner? They booed us because we had the temerity to tell the truth about the Clinton impeachment. We said it was a right-wing operation, which it was. Ken Starr, the independent prosecutor, all the rest were lavishly subsidized right-wing attack dogs. And they wanted to replace Clinton with Newt Gingrich. That would have been great for the country, wouldn't it? So... We were no you know, great fans of Bill Clinton, but we thought the alternative was even worse. So we stuck our little necks out and we did the reporting on the vast right-wing conspiracy, as Hillary Clinton called it, opposing President Clinton, trying to bring him down and replace him with someone even worse. So that's what it takes. I think the future 
It's podcasts like yours, Joe Rogan. I know people hate him, but you know, there it is. It's an alternative source of information. Elon Musk, Twitter, Bobby Kennedy went recently on that, you know, used that platform and he got some shit for it, but you know, more power to him. I think he has to do an end run. And that's what Bobby is trying to do now around the corporate media. They're always going to attack you. You know, there were two or three stories, new stories, supposedly a day against Bernie Sanders when he almost got the Democratic nomination last time in the New York Times. They hated Bernie Sanders because he was going to be an, an outlier. He was telling the truth about what's wrong with this country, whether it's big pharma or the constant wars that we're in and so on. So the New York Times wouldn't allow that. You know, they want safe establishment candidates only. DNC approved candidates only. I think their censorship, the so-called liberal media and their corporate media, I call them, you know, outlets that we've named are worse in many ways, are worse than the far right than Fox News. They censor more. They control the truth more. They're more, I think, they're serving the national security state more. I couldn't disagree with that. So, David, I'd like to just give you my quick summary of Chessboard, and then you tell me what you think of this, all right? Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s most recommended book about his uncle's assassination is JFK and the Unspeakable. I love James Douglas's work, and I think it's incomplete unless paired side-by-side with The Devil's Chessboard. Your book speaks the unspeakable, the multi-decade true history of power and politics in America that gave demonic birth to a state within a state that ultimately murdered not only our last legitimate president, John F. Kennedy, but also murdered the American constitutional republic and replaced it with a CIA-controlled covert fascist regime in partnership with the military, industrial, corporate, congressional media complex. Alan Dulles was not the only player in this grand game of deception, usurpation, mass murder, propaganda, mind control, tyranny, and destruction of democracy, but he was arguably the key player. I would posit Alan Dulles could fairly be named the true founding father of the American empire we live in today, run by an American Gestapo on steroids, an empire that has been in a permanent state of war and attempted world domination through a mixture of direct military and clandestine action for the past 60 years. David, your response to that summary of your book. I think that's very accurate. I do think there's been a dynastic struggle for the heart and soul of this country, starting with the Roosevelt presidency during the Great Depression in the 1930s and 1940s, and up through the Kennedy presidency. But I think it was violently ended, that struggle, in Dallas, November 1963, when President Kennedy was killed. That struggle involved, for a time, I think the enlightened leadership of Franklin Roosevelt and, for a brief period, JFK, who modeled himself, I think, in some ways on the Roosevelt presidency, which his father, Joseph Kennedy, had served, of course. So I believe there was a struggle, as they say, for the country. 
That struggle was terminated in 1963 when I was only 12 years old. And we've been living with the tragic results of that assassination, as you said, ever since. I do think our government was largely taken over by a war-oriented, profits-oriented kind of mentality. Men, and they were largely men, who came from Wall Street or worked in the national security system like Alan Dulles did. And Dulles was not the orchestrator, of course, of all this. He was, by training, a lawyer who had served at the largest law firm, he and his brother, Sullivan and Cromwell, on Wall Street before he became CIA director. He was used to a board of directors, used to people, clients, serving clients who had more power and wealth than he did. That's why I devote one chapter in The Devil's Chessboard to quote the power elite with the term used by the great sociologist C. Wright Mills in his book. These are the people that he believes really ran the country, the power elite. Now, today we call them the deep state or others, but I think that system of control has metastasized and it's quite more, it's more complex, more labyrinthine today than it was during Alan Dulles' day. But in Alan Dulles' day, during the Cold War period, it was possible for a few men to exert their authority. He did answer to others with more wealth and power. But Alan Dulles, I believe, put together the assassination. He'd done it several times as CIA director to foreign leaders. He was used to doing that. He knew which men to call on. And then as a member of the Warren Commission, as you pointed out, he led the cover-up of the crime as well. So they gave the Warren Commission to the Wolves, who were in charge of the hen house, to Alan Dulles. He was only confronted, as I say in my book, by one person, David Lifton, a nerdy physics grad student, UCLA, I believe it was 65 after the Warren Party came out. He had read the whole thing. He'd seen photographs of what happened that day in Dealey Plaza. And a seminar at UCLA, David Lifton confronted Alan Dulles, who tried to joke it away at first. Then he got very upset and very angry. Well, of course, it would show under professional grilling how Alan Dulles would have acquitted himself. He would have fallen apart, I think, on the witness stand if he was subjected to a good, you know, a professional prosecutor. So I believe that, yes, that he was the man who put together the crime and the cover up, but he was answering to generals, to CEOs, to people who thought Kennedy was an impediment to their profits, their power. And he was trying to end the Cold War. He was deathly afraid, as Teddy Kennedy told me in my interview with him and Ted Sorensen, the speechwriter for President Kennedy, both told me this. He ran because for president because he was deathly afraid of an accidental nuclear war breaking out, like World War I. He was a student of history, JFK. He had read the books. And of course, we almost stumbled into a nuclear holocaust during the October missile crisis in 1962. I think that JFK was determined that would not happen on his watch. I think the generals and the national security people, the CIA people around him, were advising him to take a disastrous position that would have resulted in nuclear war. We thought we had nuclear superiority. These people did over the Soviet Union in those years. They urged President Kennedy to take a strong stand against Russia and China. He refused to do it because he knew that millions would die as a result of this nuclear showdown. 
So we owe a lot to GFK. I'm still here, frankly. I remember during the October missile crisis, my father coming home saying, we may not live till the morning because there may be a nuclear exchange. And thank God he and Khrushchev, GFK and Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union, backed down and were able to reach a back-channel agreement. So JFK was, I think, a martyr to the cause of peace. Absolutely. And if I was to say, what is the single most important fact of JFK's presidency? It is that every human alive today owes their existence to JFK and Bobby Kennedy's diplomacy with Premier Khrushchev and the other Soviet interlocutors. Because if they had not worked that out, we wouldn't even be here. I would never have been born. And this is such a profound fact. This is something that every American needs to know. And I think most, unfortunately, especially younger folks just don't know about this. And we need to reclaim this history. Someone the other day, a journalist for Wall Street Journal was interviewing me about something completely unrelated. And he made a reference to the fact that JFK was a cold warrior, was a macho guy who wanted, you know, confronted the enemy again and again. That's bullshit. That is the wrong history. That's the wrong way to see President Kennedy. President Kennedy stood up to these people, the national security elite, and he paid with his life for doing that. That's exactly right. And if you have any doubt whatsoever what JFK's policy and his vision for the world was, just watch that June 10th, 1963 speech exactly. at American University. It's absolutely clear. If I may, I'd like to go back to a bit of the prelude that sets us up for Alan Dulles. And I'm going to read a snippet from Chessboard. You wrote, when Franklin Roosevelt moved into the White House in 1933, he was well aware of the entrenched interests that he would be confronting as he attempted to reform the country's financial system and to create a social buffer against the havoc of the Depression. The real truth, FDR wrote to Colonel Edward M. House, President Wilson's close advisor, as you and I know, is that a financial element in the larger centers has owned government ever since the days of Andrew Jackson. For a brief period during the widespread devastation of the 1930s, the New Deal was able to challenge this plutocracy, as Roosevelt called it. The Roosevelt presidency did not dismantle the power elite, Mills later wrote, but it did create within the political arena, as well as in the corporate world itself, competing centers of power that challenged those of the corporate directors. And so I think that's very interesting to place the entire thread of corporatocracy, oligarchy, plutocracy, that intersection of power, and how that showed up in the form of Alan Dulles against this other strain that was about democracy, the people, human rights, equality, as imperfect as it was, that was the strain that I think FDR and then JFK represented. And that was the conflict, right? That's right. That speaks to the dynastic struggle that I talked about earlier between these families, these interest groups for the direction of America. You know, my father was a Warner Brothers star. He was a co-founder of Screen Actors Guild, Lyle Talbot. And he was on a train that Warner's put together in 1933. The inauguration happened in March of that year for FDR. And he was put on train with other Warner stars in 1933, Betty Davis, the Buzzy Berkeley Chorus Girls, Tom Mix and his horse. And they were all scheduled to go back to, you know, the inaugural parade for President Roosevelt. And Jack Warner and all the people around the studios in Hollywood were Republicans and were going to endorse Herbert Hoover that year during the presidential campaign in 32. 
But Joe Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family, came to Harry Warner, who was the finance chief of the Warner Studio in New York, and said, look, we're going to have a revolution in this country if we don't get Franklin Roosevelt elected. And so Warner's decided to campaign heavily for Roosevelt and helped deliver California for FDR in 32. That was a big deal. So I do think those were the stakes. And that was the only, that was the time when a president, a visionary president, a progressive president like FDR could remake power to some extent in this world because the country was dealing with the havoc, as I put it, of the depression. And because revolution was really in sight at that point, people are hungry, people out of work, millions on the road looking for jobs. So I think FDR averted that, the catastrophe of a, a violent revolution in this country with his New Deal programs, which were resisted tooth and nail by the Dulles brothers and others' powers within the financial centers. The Dulles brothers, as I said earlier, ran the largest law firm on Wall Street at the time, Sullivan and Cromwell. And they advised all their corporate clients to resist Franklin Roosevelt, to resist the New Deal, the reforms that he tried to implement, and he did implement the SEC and so on, the Wall Street reforms. So they were traitors all along. They went against national policy that was meant to make the millions, make the uh, people who were suffering from the Depression, meant to alleviate the Depression, the effects of the Depression. And later, the Dulles brothers, as I delineate in my book, were traitors during the war with Nazi Germany in World War II. I think they would have been tried as traitors to this country if FDR had lived. Instead, of course, they rose to even higher positions of power in the Eisenhower presidency. Here's what I'd like to leave you with related to your comment about the Dulles brothers being traitors to the country. As I listened to the audiobook of The Devil's Chessboard, I couldn't help but stare at the cover, fascinated with the typography choices and feeling a sense of gnawing disquiet. On the surface, the text-only presentation appeared unassuming, almost intentionally unremarkable. What was this design hiding? It finally struck me. The colors, not red, white, and blue, but red, white, and black. The branding of an adversary most Americans take for granted is permanently consigned to the dustbin of history. A secret government indeed. And once I saw the colors of Nazi Germany, not in the shape of a swastika, but operating in the background as an implied covert form of unaccountable power, I couldn't unsee those colors. David, were those colors your idea and or how did the design for the cover come about? Good question, Matthew. Yes, we, my colleague Karen Croft and I had a long, long discussions about the cover and we decided that a type cover was best, was appropriate, as you say. It was a conscious decision to mirror the colors used by Hitler, who of course was an artist himself and choreographed his regime accordingly. But I do think that that was probably unconsciously at play. I did put a satanic tale, as you know, in the typography. That was my addition. I added that. I wanted them to do that. Because I believe there is something sinful 
about these people who've run our country and done it very violently and very for their own interests and against the interests of the American people. You know, James Angleton, who was in charge of counterintelligence at the CIA under Alan Dulles and was very closely associated with the Dulles regime, said in, at the end of his life, and he was dying from cancer at the time, he said to a, a reporter, we are all going to hell, meaning Dulles, himself, people like Richard Helms, others who'd run the agency because of the things they'd done. He was a Catholic, James Angleton. He understood you know, sin and hell and, and notions like that. I think what they did, whether you're a religious person or not, was a sin. And I think what they did to the American people when they killed Kennedy was a sin. And I think Alan Dulles knowingly took those steps, knowingly had people killed, not just JFK, but dozens of others around the world, because he was psychotic. And it takes a certain kind of person I think, to wield that kind of power. Dulles got to the top because he had no compunctions, no kind of conscience about limiting people who he think stood in the way of those he served, not just himself, but those he served, and the America that he wanted to impose on the rest of us. It was a corporate America. So Alan Dulles, I think, has a lot to answer for throughout history, as you know from reading my book, his daughter, Joan Dulles, to this day, I think Joan is alive in her 90s, struggles, did struggle mightily with the legacy of her father and what he did to this country. She's a Jungian therapist herself, and she understands what this does, not only to the people who perpetrate these crimes, but to their loved ones like her, like his daughter. So I think generations later, you're right. We're still living with the legacy of people like Alan Dulles, and there still is a darkness at the heart of this country that we're all trying to fight against and, and until our last breath, right? <laughs> My last breath. We, we're not going to return to our knees ever again now that we know the truth, right? And I think our country, frankly, we need a social exorcism, right? Yep. We need to exercise the spirit, the influence, all of the demonic programming that Alan Dulles and his cohorts injected into the fabric of our society. We need to have a reckoning with it. Another metaphor is it's a malignancy and we have to get to the source of it. We can't deal with the symptoms. We have to get to the source of this malignancy. And David, this has been such a pleasure. And we, we ended on some references to the red, white, and black. So in our next episode, we'll be talking a little bit more about Alan and his brothers, Foster's connection with the Nazi regime and some of Alan Jr.'s accusations against his father that he was a Hitler lover and Nazi collaborator. We're going to explore that as well. And I just want to thank you so much, David. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure.